This is the second time that I've come to Wellesley to introduce distinguished writers. And if you're wondering why the director of the Tufts Center for the Humanities keeps returning to the Wellesley Center to do intros and Q&As, the answer is simple, gambling debts. <laughs> uh, Carol Doherty runs a book on the NFL out of her office at Wellesley. <laughs> And through a series of bad wages, I owe her a large sum that I'm trying to pay off. When she calls, I answer. Um, I was trying to think, uh, in the way that introducers must, of how I might harness these two terrific writers together. And it didn't seem quite enough to say that they were both white guys. And that was totally cool at Wellesley because it was a women's college, whereas if I had invited the two of them to Tufts, I'd be in trouble. But then I remembered um, that in one of Ben Percy's arresting stories, Refresh, Refresh, Tumalo, Oregon, a high desert town in the foothills of the Cascade Mountains, home to a marine base, has the rationale of its location explained the following way. Apparently conditions here in Oregon's ranch country match very closely those of the Middle East. And throughout my childhood, I could hear if I cupped my hand to my ear, the lowing of bulls, the bleating of sheep, the report of assault rifles shouting from the hilltops. I thought, well, just like Tel Aviv, especially the lowing of the bulls. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, the, the truth is that, that what these writers have in common is their mastery of the form of the short story. In the short form, Ben Percy, who's going to read first, works a seam that is also mined by Faulkner, by Cormac McCarthy, and by James Dickey. His prose is strong and direct. His fictional world, a place where the violence that frequently leeches in, reflects and refracts histories, injustices, and eruptions in far-off places. Oregon, Ben Percy's Oregon, is where Vietnam, or Iraq, or Afghanistan come home to burn. More recently, he's taken a bold step and in his novel, Red Moon, introduced some werewolves into his territory. As the unfailingly reliable British newspaper, The Guardian, put it, Red Moon is that rare beast, a genre novel that is literary, politically aware, and thought-provoking. And John Irving, who knows some stuff about writing, described it as a seriously politically symbolic novel, a literary novel about lycanthropes and added, if George Orwell had imagined a future where the werewolf population had grown to the degree that they were colonized and drugged, this terrifying novel might be it. Ben Percy's writing has appeared in the Paris Review, Best American Stories, and many other distinguished publications. He's won a Whiting Writers Award and the Plimpton Prize, um, and he's now living uh, in Minnesota. Two more things about Ben. Um, my son Adam, who is also a writer, uh, told me that not long ago he heard uh, Ben doing Johnny Cash in a karaoke contest at the Associated Writers Program uh, meeting in Chicago. And he also told me that his girlfriend blushes whenever she hears Ben's voice. Uh, I also know that he once read Goodnight Moon as a Halloween exercise available briefly on YouTube, I believe, and terrified God knows how many children. Uh, you'll hear why in a couple of seconds. It's a great pleasure to welcome Ben Percy.
Hey, everybody. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me out here. I remember vividly the first time I met the Wolfman. It was in Western Oregon, in Crow, at the elementary school, and I pulled off the library shelf, the Universal Studios Book of Monsters, and I pawed through it until I came to the page that bore the image of Lon Chaney Jr. And I was just mesmerized by that ridiculous pompadour and that fanged underbite and that hoggish nose of his. So much so that when I returned to my home, I could not sleep and called out for my mama all night. The next morning though, I returned to that same corner of the library, I pulled down that same book, I returned to that same page, that the werewolf myth, for whatever reason, just I felt magnetized by it. And so many years later, when I was in sixth grade, I wrote a research paper, and research should definitely be in quotation marks. <laughs> the title of it was Werewolves. And I say it like that because there was an exclamation mark at the end. <laughs> it was only five pages long, but it had a table of contents. The final section was called The Ceremony of the Wolf. And in my backyard, beneath a full moon, I attempted to transform myself. Which is why I sound like this. <laughs> Despite my obvious dedication to the subject matter, I received a B minus on this paper. Scratched there in blood red ink, I still have the artifact. Which is why it feels so good to stand before you now and say, in your face, Mrs. Ziegenhagen. <laughs> so I grew up on genre. I grew up reading mysteries by Tony Hillerman, Agatha Christie, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I grew up reading fantasy novels, all of the forgotten realms, the wheel of time, Tolkien, of course. For a long time, if it had a dragon on the cover, if it had a dragon and a flaming sword. I read spy thrillers, techno thrillers. Horror especially gripped me in its bony fist. And I don't know if you know about Powell's Bookstore, which has quite the online presence these days, but that was my, that was my bookstore. Where I lived, we just had the sad Walden books in the Bend River Mall that really didn't have much to it. So we'd take this pilgrimage every few months up to Powell's, and in the blue room there, I would, I would build a dark tower of, of novels that would sustain me over the next few months. And, and so for the longest time, that's what I thought storytelling was. I thought storytelling was vampires and dragons and robots with lasers for eyes. <laughs> and when I walked into that first creative writing workshop when I was in college, I sat down and I listened to the professor, who looked like a mannequin. He had no hair and a dead expression. <laughs> I listened to him go through the syllabus, and the last thing he said was, now genre. And I threw up my hand when he said, anybody got any questions? And I said, well, what do you mean by that, no genre? And he said, no vampires, no dragons, no robots with lasers for eyes. <laughs> and I sat there for a few seconds before throwing up my hand again and very earnestly asking him, but what else is there? <laughs> and I soon discovered what else there was. I had never read Sherman Alexie, I had never read Alice Munro, I had never read Raymond Carver, I had never read Flannery O'Connor, and they became favorite writers of mine, but I never fell out of love with genre. 
And I had a moment a few years later after reading and writing literary fiction, almost exclusively, I had a, I had a moment where I, was, I picked up a book called Thrilling Tales, edited by Michael Chabon, published by McSweeney's originally and now available through Vintage. And what Michael Chabon did was he assigned to all of the writers in this anthology the type of story that they would have loved to read when growing up. In his introduction, he wrote about being a bored reader and being too a bored writer. And he took both genre fiction and literary fiction to task. Literary fiction, realism, has become the norm over the past few decades. And he's saying if you look at the long hoofmark trail of literature, realism is not the norm, realism is the trend. And he was sort of uh, requesting the fantastic, requesting the speculative from his authors. And so Rick Moody wrote a story about a dystopia where a drug allowed people to retreat their favorite memories. And Nick Hornby wrote a story about a magic VCR that could look into the future. And Jim Shepard wrote a story about a giant shark. And on and on it went. And it was sort of hit or miss, but that introduction especially really resonated with me. He said, what's the worst of literary fiction? The worst of literary fiction is somebody stares out the window while sipping a cup of tea at a roiling bank of clouds and they have an orgasmic epiphany. Nothing happens. But of course, the sentences are very pretty. And the metaphors glow and the themes are subterranean and the characters are so three-dimensional that you think about them years later and wonder what they're up to. And what about the worst of genre fiction? The characters are one-dimensional, the prose is pedestrian, the plots are formulaic. But the best of genre fiction? It always has all six cylinders blazing. It never forgets that most essential question, what happens next? And what I started to discover as I read Michael Chabon, as I read Margaret Atwood, as I read Kate Atkinson, as I read Susanna Clark, as I read Cormac McCarthy, was that really these feel, these attempts to, to, at, at taxonomy, they feel to me very much like phantom barricades. Where does Cormac McCarthy belong in the bookstore? You could put No Country for Old Men in Crime. You could put All the Pretty Horses in Western. You could put The Road in Sci-Fi. You could put Child of God in Horror. You could put Sutri in Literature with a capital L. Right. Why not write things that are compulsively readable and at the same time, you know, there's careful carpentry as you describe those exploding helicopters or attacking sharks so wondrously. And so these are the sort of borderlands that I became most interested in as I wrote this novel. And when I sat down to write this novel, I was thinking about why some fantasy stories resonate, why they last. And when I considered this, I thought about how they're very much tied to the cultural moment. They take a knife to the nerve of the moment. Think about the way that Frankenstein is born out of the Industrial Revolution. And in the creature, we see the fears of science and technology, the fear of man playing God. Look at the way that Dracula is connected to Victorian prudishness. Look at the way that invasion of bodies, the body snatchers is connected to uh, McCarthyism and the Red Scare. Look at the way that George Romero reinvented the zombie metaphor in every era in which he produced those Living Dead films. Look at the slew of apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic narratives that have come since 
And so when I sat down and thought about what we fear right now, we fear two things. One, we fear terrorism, as the ISIS situation has recently reminded us. And if you think about the aftermath in your own backyard of the Boston Marathon bombing, we were paralyzed, we were owned by the millions, gripped by fear. So we fear terrorism and we fear infection. You, of course, can look at the headlines now about Ebola, but even before that, every countertop of every business in America usually contains at least three bottles of antibacterial lotion. We're scared to death of a country of germs, as a country of germs. And so I braided these two things together, and this is, I guess you could say, a post-apocalypse, I mean, a, a, a post-9-11 reimagining of the werewolf myth in that way. And so I have this animal-born pathogen that is the equivalent of mad cow disease or chronic wasting disease, a prion, a misfolded protein leaping out of the wolf population and mutating in its human host, and 5% of the population is infected as they have been throughout human history and they are treated as second-class citizens. And it is really about the culture of fear that we live in, xenophobia, the marginalization of the other. So it opens up with a terrorist act, and in response to this, there's a swift government crackdown. I'm going to read that moment. Claire is about to discover her family's secret history. Claire does not know what is happening outside right this minute as the small brigade of vehicles, the armored vans, the black sedans with government plates appear at the end of her block with their headlights off. She lives in a wooded neighborhood, each house set back on a half-acre lot. There are no street lights, no sidewalk. The vehicles purr to a stop. Their doors swing open but do not close. Any noise that might bring Claire to the window the stomp of boots along the asphalt, the clatter of assault rifles and ammunition clips is muffled by the steady snowfall, a white shroud thrown over the night. She does not know about the tall man in the black suit and black necktie, his skull as hairless as a stone, who stands next to his black Lincoln town car. She does not know that he has his hands tucked into his pockets or that the snow is melting against his scalp and dripping down his face or that he is smiling. She does not know that her father and mother are sitting at the kitchen table drinking their way through a bottle of Merlot, not holding but squeezing each other's hands in reassurance as they watch CNN, the coverage of what the president calls a coordinated terror attack directed at the heart of America. So she does not know that when the front door kicks open, splintering along its hinges, her father is holding the remote in his hand, a long black remote that could be mistaken for a weapon. She does not know that he stands up so suddenly his chair tips over and clatters the floor, that he screams no and holds out his hand, the hand gripping the remote, and points it at the men as they come rushing through the entryway, the dark rectangle of night, with snow fluttering around them like damp shredded paper. She only knows 
when she hears the crash, the screams, the rattle of gunfire, that she must run. She hasn't changed often, only a handful of times. Not only because it is forbidden, because she could be jailed for it, but because she doesn't like the way it makes her feel so grotesquely other. And bruised for days afterward, her body sudden shifting like the growing pains that make children twist under their sheets and cry out at night. She can smell the men now. Deodorant and aftershave. Cigarettes and gum. Gun oil. The sulfur of their weapons discharge. She can hear their harsh breathing, their voices calling out clear from different corners of the house. She can feel their footsteps pounding up the stairs. Her skin itches horribly as if bubbling over with hives, and then the hair bristles from it in a rush. Her gums recede and her teeth grind together in a mouth not yet big enough for them. Her bones stretch and bend and and she yowls in pain as if she is giving birth, one body coming out of another. She always cries, tears of blood. This time her tears and mewling come from the pain, and also the dawning realization that everything in an instant has changed. But these thoughts are fleeting. The wolf in her has no time for them. Her mind sharpens to a singular focus. Survival is what matters. There is nothing else. No love or sadness or fear or worry. Only a needle stab of adrenaline that surges through her. Sends her loping toward the window. Toward the reflection she barely recognizes. Hunched and misshapen and growing larger by the second. Then she crashes through herself. Through the window. The glass shatters and shards of it bite at her. There is no roof to scuttle across, no lattice or gutter to climb down. There is instead the blackness of the night, the emptiness of the air she falls through, flipping and twisting as the wind shrieks in her ears and the ground rushes up to meet her. Splinters of glass mixed up with snow sparkle all around her. Two inches have already fallen, but that isn't enough to cushion a fall from a second-story window. She lands on all fours, rolling and thudding forwards, sliding across the short expanse of lawn, smearing away the snow in a ragged teardrop to reveal the green grass beneath. A tree at the edge of the lawn offers a hammer blow to her chest. Her breath is gone. Her wrist blazes. The night seems to close upon her for a moment. And then she draws in a sucking gasp. Her window throws a square of light broken up by triangles and hexagons of yellow and orange that spotlight her body. The spotlight blackened a moment later when the men charge into her room and pursue her exit. She shakes away the pain and leaps to her feet and sees the man. The tall man in the black suit. Twenty yards away, he observes her with his head cocked. And then he begins to walk, and then run, his long arms slashing the air toward her. Thanks. Thank you. I'm really uh, delighted uh, to be able to introduce Edgar Carrot. 
Um, I've uh, followed his career since I was about the age that he is now. I think that's a long time ago. <laughs> and he's been consistently, I've been consistently um, <coughs> enchanted and wowed by his antic metafictions. Uh, like Grace Paley, he knows how to carry darkness in a light basket, which is one of the best ways to get it home. Edgar Kerrett has won many accolades in his home country, Israel, and abroad. Not least among them, he holds the Chevalier of France's Order of Arts and Letters. He lives in the city-state of Tel Aviv, a city that manages to behave like a village even though it has a population of 400,000. I know this not only from experience, but because in the last three days alone, I've been asked to pass on messages to Edgar from one of his neighbors, who used to be a student of mine, and from another old friend of his. Both these people live, especially the neighbor, of course, within striking distance of our writer. So why they are communicating through me is a mystery. Um, but it does add an irresistible extra layer of proximity. Edgar Kerrett hails from a volatile part of the world. And he doesn't flinch from addressing its trials and tribulations in his fiction and discursive prose. I'm sure some of you read online in The New Yorker his extraordinary exchange with his friend, Syed Kashua, the Palestinian-Israeli novelist who, losing all hope, decided to move permanently to the USA with his family after the Gaza conflict. In their exchange, Syed asks Etka to write him a story with a happy ending. Etka complies. He proposes a brilliant three-state three state solution. One for Israelis, one for Palestinians, and one for all the racists and fundamentalists on both sides. I'm not sure the ending's a happy one. You'll have to decide that for yourselves. But let me leave you with a quote from that master blurber, Gary Steingart, who said of Edgar Kerrett's The Nimrod Flipout, the Nimrod Flipout is the best work of literature to come out of Israel in the last 5,000 years. Better than Leviticus, and nearly as funny. Please welcome Edgar Kerry. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. And I must say that uh, my, bro my brother-in-law is a musician. And uh, he's like, not a, a musician sounds kind of like nicer, OK? He's a rock star. And uh, uh, he always says that uh, when he goes to reading, that it's, uh, it's, it's more boring than, uh, than uh, to see rock concerts, because you have uh, two artists, and they never jam together. You know, so I, I, uh, listening uh, to, to Benjamin Reed, you know, with his amazing voice, I remember that there is a story of mine that is really, really short that I never read in a, I never read in events because when I read, I sound like the pussy I am, you know? <laughs> so, so, I thought, <laughs> so I thought maybe she would be reading, because you never read it before, but it's very short. Would you be willing to give it a shot? <laughs> Come. <laughs> so you see, it's, it's just this and this, but then you have to turn, and it's this one too. Okay, it's like okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you are getting back up here, right? Yeah, yeah, I will, I will. 
The story, Victorious. This story is the best story in the book. More than that, this story is the best story in the world. And we weren't the ones to come to that conclusion. It was also reached by a unanimous team of dozens of unaffiliated experts who, employing strict laboratory standards, measured it against a representative sampling taken from world literature. This story is a unique Israeli innovation. And I bet you're asking yourselves, how is it that we, tiny little Israel, composed it and not the Americans? What you should know is that the Americans are asking themselves the same thing. <laughs> and more than a few of the bigwigs in American publishing stand to lose their jobs because they didn't have that answer at the ready while it still mattered. Just as our army is the best army in the world, same with this story. We're talking here about an opening so innovative that it's protected by registered patent. And where is this patent registered? That's the thing, it's registered in the story itself. This story's got no shtick to it, no trick to it, no touchy-feely bits. It's forged from a single block, an amal amalgam of deep ins... I don't think I've ever said that word out loud. <laughs> of deep insights and aluminum. It won't rust, it won't bust, but it may wander. It's super contemporary and timelessly literary. Let history be the judge. And by the way, according to many fine folk, judgment's been passed, and our story came up aces. What's so special about this story, people ask, and out of innocence or ignorance, depending on who's asking, what's it got that isn't in Chekhov or Kafka or I don't know who? <laughs> the answer to that question is long and complicated, longer than the story itself, but less complex because there's nothing more intricate than this story. Nevertheless, we attempt to answer by example. In contrast to works by Chekhov and Kafka, at the end of the story, one lucky winder, randomly selected from among all the correct readers, will receive a brand new Mazda Lantis with a metallic gray finish. And from among the incorrect readers, one special someone will be selected to receive another car, cheaper, but no less impressive, and its metallic grayness so that he or she shouldn't feel bad. Because this story isn't here to condescend. It's here so that you'll feel good. What's that saying printed on the placemats at the diner near your house? Enjoyed yourself. Tell your friends. Didn't enjoy yourself? Tell us. Or, in this case, report it to the story. Because this story doesn't just tell, it also listens. Its ears, as they say, are attuned to every stirring of the public's heart. And when the public has had enough and calls for someone to put an end to it, this story won't drag its feet or grab hold of the edges of the altar. It will simply stop. The story, victorious, two. But if one day, out of nostalgia, you suddenly want the story back, it will always be happy to oblige. You're amazing. So you see, readers can, writers can jam too. <laughs> so, Whenever I read, I always have a problem, like what to read, because I wrote many, many short stories and I don't know what to choose. So I thought it would only be fair that I, I read the first text I've ever written and the last one, and like the middle really doesn't matter. So, <laughs> so I wrote the story during my compulsory army service. Uh, I, in Israel, you go to the army when you're 18 for three years, and uh, I come from a lineage of uh, horrible soldiers. It goes all the way, you know, to Russia and the Tsar's army, but, uh, but just, I won't talk about 
all the all the bad soldiers in my family, but just my my older brother, for example, he's the only soldier in the history of the IDF that was tried, uh, found guilty, and sent to jail for practicing paganism. <laughs> uh, during the Lebanon War, they they let him uh, guard an aerial antenna on some hill in Lebanon. And they, because it was a war, they forgot to replace him. And when they came a month later, they saw that he turned uh, that antenna into a huge Indian totem with the face of an eagle. Uh, and in his trial, uh, he said to his defense that uh, his stupid officer who thought he saw, was saw, seeing him worshiping the antenna was actually seeing him uh, tying his shoelaces. <laughs> but they didn't believe him, and he, he was, was sent to jail, and it was less funny then. And, and I was a very bad soldier too. Uh, uh, I think it has to do a lot with my upbringing because my, my parents, they had this system that they said that we had to do what they told them, what they told us, but we always had, could ask for a reason. So if they said, uh, if I would say, why should I shower? They say, oh, so you, know, so you won't have uh, things kind of growing out of your cheeks or a bird nest in your hair. And those reasons, sometimes we, we agreed to them, sometimes we didn't, but at least kind of it made us feel less kind of under uh, some kind of a totalitarian rule, you know? And uh, in this army, in the army, this system doesn't work, you know? <laughs> when you say to your sergeant ma major, I'll happily crawl in the mud if you just tell me why, <laughs> then they get angry because I think that they don't know why. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, so I, I, I got kicked from uh, five different units. I, the one before last, I had uh, an officer who was a, a very gentle, uh, religious uh, Jewish man. And he said to me that being a believer, he believed that uh, every man, animal, and plant were created for a reason. And he said, and you know, I'm with you for four months, and I can't figure out why God had created you. <laughs> And he said, it's only because of me. You must be good for something, but I cannot, you know. Uh, so in the end, the army did find that the thing that I was okay in, not good, but okay, was computers. So they transferred me into this uh, computer unit, and uh, I would have to go through 48-hour shifts there uh, in a very kind of cold room, you know, strong air condition, no windows, to totally by myself. Uh, my job was at to be there in case the computer broke and I was supposed to fix it. I served there for two and a half years. It broke once. I didn't know how to fix it. They, <laughs> they, call, a guy, they call a guy from IBM. You know, he got inside. He did something and then he said to me, are you stupid or what? And then left. So, but during those two and a half years, you know, like when you so much time on your own in a, in a room with no windows, with no connection to the outside world. It's very much like solitary confinement and you do the, all those things that you see in jail movies when people do one hand push-ups and talk to rats. <laughs> and, and really, and the first thing you do is start talking to yourself. And then uh, after a few months of talking to myself, I found myself sitting next to this computer and writing something. And it was a text and I wasn't even sure if it was a story. And I really wanted somebody to tell me if it was a story. So I printed it out. It was just one page. I had to wait for something like 20 hours for my first potential reader, who was a sergeant, an older guy who was a soldier. And I said to him, listen, I've written this story. I'm not sure it is a story, but it's really short. Do you want to read it? And he said to me, fuck off. <laughs> <coughs> so I fucked off with, <laughs> with my printed page. And I, I had to find somebody to read it. It was 6 a.m. in the morning. I took a bus to 
to my older pagan brother's house and <laughs> and I bust this intercom and you know and uh, and uh, he answered and I said to him listen I wrote this thing you you must read it really uh, can I come up and he said it's not a really good idea because you just woke up my girlfriend and she's furious you know we don't usually have visitors 6 30 a.m you know what I come down with the dog I read it while walking the dog and I said sure and he came down and he had this very small dog not so smart dog called uh, Adam. And uh, Adam was excited. Nobody ever took him down that early, you know, if it was his birthday or something. And it was, and my brother took this piece of paper just when Adam was about to do his thing. Uh, and my brother started walking and Adam didn't want to walk. So he tried to kind of pull him back, but you know, it's a big brother, small dog. It wasn't a really a fair fight and my brother, was walking while reading, right, transfixed by the text while dragging the poor little dog <laughs> behind him. And the dog went kind of boing, boing, boing on the pavement. <laughs> and uh, luckily for the dog, my stories are, are really short. So, <laughs> so, you know, so after a couple of blocks, my brother stopped and the dog did what he wanted to do in the first place. And my brother looked at me and I saw he had moist eyes. And my brother, like, he's not a tough guy, but he's not the guy to cry from anything. And he really, I w could see how moved he was. And he looked at me and he said to me, it's amazing, it's really amazing. I don't believe you, ro you wrote that, you know? Like, I know you all my life and I don't believe you you've written that. And I said to me, do you have another copy of it? And I said, sure. So he bent down and he picked the dog poo <laughs> with the printed story and he threw it in the garbage. And, and that was the moment when I decided I want to become a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Really, because, because there was something about it that, that my brother all the time, he taught me important lessons about life, but he always did it in a very kind of strange way. And, uh, and what I felt he was telling me, that the story was not at all in the page. I looked at him, you know, and the story, and, and I looked at the, at the piece of paper covered in dog poo with, with flies hovering around it. And I felt like, you know, that, let's say if this is a story that, oh, I, so, that he, he kind of, I kind of did something like this with this paper and I spilled something from my mind to his, you know, from my heart to his. And now we didn't need the paper anymore and it felt very much like magic. And I said, wow, that's what I want to do the rest of my life. So I'm going to read that story. I wrote it a very, very long time ago. Uh, uh, and uh, it's called Pipes. When I go to seventh grade, the head of psychologist come to school and put us through a bunch of adjustment tests. He showed me 20 different flashcards, one by one, and asked me what was wrong with the pictures. They all seemed fine to me, but he insisted and showed me the first picture again, the one with the kid in it. What's wrong with this picture, he asked in a tired voice. I told him the picture seemed fine. He got really mad and said, can't you see the boy in the picture doesn't have any ears? The truth is that when I looked at the picture again, I did see that the kid had no ears. But the picture still seemed fine to me. The psychologist cl classified me as suffering from severe perceptual dis disorders and had me transferred to carpentry school. When I got there, it turned out I was allergic to sawdust, so they transferred me to a metalworking class. I was pretty good at it, but I didn't really enjoy it. To tell the truth, I didn't really enjoy anything in particular. When I finished school, I started working in a factory that made pipes. My boss was an engineer with a diploma from a top technical college, a brilliant guy. If you showed him a picture of a kid without ears or something like that, 
he'd figure it out in no time. After work, I'd stay on the factory and make myself odd-shaped pipes, winding ones that look like curled-up snakes, and I'd roll marbles through them. I know it sounds like a dumb thing to do, and I didn't even enjoy it, but I went on doing it anyway. One night, I made a pipe that was really complicated, with lots of twists and turns in it, and when I rolled the marble in, it didn't come out at the other end. At first, I thought it was just stuck in the middle, but after I tried it with about 20 more marbles, I realized they were simply disappearing. I know that everything I say sounds kind of stupid. I mean, everyone knows that marbles don't just disappear. But when I saw the marbles go in at one end of the pipe and not come out at the other end, it didn't even strike me as strange. It seemed perfectly okay, actually. That was when I decided to make myself a bigger pipe in the same shape and to crawl into it until I disappeared. When the idea came to me, I was so happy that I started laughing out loud. I think it was the first time in my entire life that I laughed. From that day on, I worked on my giant pipe. Every evening, I'd work on it, and in the morning, I'd hide the parts in the storeroom. It took me 20 days to finish making it. On the last night, it took me five hours to assemble it, and it took up about half the shop floor. When I saw it all in one piece waiting for me, I remembered my social studies teacher, who said once that the first human being to use the club wasn't the strongest person in his tribe or the smartest. They, they didn't need a club, while well, he did. He needed the club more than anyone to survive and to make up for being weak. I don't think there was another human being in the whole world who wanted to disappear more than I did. And that, that's why it was me that invented the pipe. Me, and not that brilliant engineer with his technical college degree who runs the factory. I started crawling inside the pipe with no idea about what to expect at the other end. Maybe there would be kids there without ears, sitting on mounds of marbles. Could be. I don't know exactly what happened after I passed a certain point in the pipe. All I know is that I'm here. I think I'm an angel now. I mean, I've got wings and this circle over my head, and there are hundreds more here like me. When I got here, they were sitting around playing with the marbles I drove through the pipe a few weeks earlier. I always used to think that heaven is a place for people who've spent their whole lives being good, but it isn't. God is too merciful and kind to make a decision like that. Heaven is simply a place for people who are genuinely unable to be happy on earth. They told me, they told me, here, that, they told me here that people who kill themselves return to live their life all over again, because the fact that they didn't like it the first time doesn't mean they won't fit in the second time. But the ones who really don't fit in the world wind up here. They each have their own way of getting to heaven. There are pilots who got here by performing a loop at one precise point in the Bermuda Triangle. There are housewives who went through the back of the kitchen cabinets to get here, and mathematicians who found topological distortions in space and had to squeeze through them to get here. So if you're really unhappy down there, and if all kinds of people are telling you that you're suffering from severe perceptual disorders, Look for your own way of getting here. And when you find it, could you please bring some cards? Because we're getting pretty tired of the marbles. <laughs> okay, I, I, I always like to read, so I'm kind of, I ask, but I, I really want to, so. Uh, so, the, so the, 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 I said this is the first piece, piece I've ever written. This is the last piece I've, ever, I've written so far. Not ever. I don't want to die tonight. 
so uh, and the, it's basically uh, for the first time in my life I've I've written an, a nonfiction book and it's a kind of a memoir, it's a collection of pieces from my life, it's called The Seven Good Years, and it documents the seven years uh, between uh, the birth uh, of my son and the death of my father. And this piece is really is when my son was a little over three. Uh, and uh, it's kind of new, I'm not used to reading it, and I have very bad English, like, so the other one I was trained, so this one I apologize in advance. It's called, what, what does the man say? The minute we got into the taxi, I had a bad feeling. And it wasn't because the driver asked me impatiently to buckle the kid's safety belt in the back seat after I'd already done so, or because he muttered something that sounded like a curse when I said we wanted to go to Ramat Gan. I take a lot of taxis, so I'm used to the bad tempers, the impatience, the armpit sweat stains. But there was something about the way that drivers spoke, something half violent and half on the verge of tears that made me uncomfortable. Lev was almost frozen, and we were on our way to grandma's. Unlike me, he couldn't have cared less about the driver and focused mainly on the tall, ugly buildings that kept smiling at him along the way. He sang Yellow Submarine quietly to himself with words he made up that sounded almost like English and waved his short legs in the air to the rhythm. At one point, his right sandal hit the taxi's plastic ashtray, knocking it over the, onto the floor. Except for a chewing gum wrapper, it was empty, so no trash was spilled. I'd already bent to, to pick it up when the driver braked suddenly, turned around to us, and with his face really close to my three-year-old son's, began screaming, You stupid kid! You broke my car, you idiot! Hey, are you crazy or something? I shouted at the driver, yelling at a free road because of a piece of plastic. Turn around and start driving, or I swear next week you'll be shaving corpses in the Abu Kabir morgue because you won't be driving any public vehicle, you hear me? When I saw that he was about to say something, I added, Shut your mouth now and drive. The drive gave me a look that was full of hatred. The possibility of smashing in my face and losing his job was in the air. He considered it for a long moment, took a deep breath, turned around, shifted into first gear and drove. On the Texas radio, Bobby McFerrin was singing, Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> but I felt very far from happy. I looked at Lev. He wasn't crying. And even though we were stuck in a very slow-moving traffic jam, it wouldn't take long to reach my parents' house. I tried to find another ray of light in that unpleasant ride but couldn't. I smiled at Lev and tussled his hair. He looked at me hard, but didn't smile back. Daddy asked, what did the man say? That man said, I answered quickly as if it was nothing, that when you're riding in a car, you have to watch how you move your legs so you don't break anything. Lev nodded, looked out of the window, and a second later asked again, and what did you say to the man? Me? I said to Lev, trying to gain a little time. I told the man that he was absolutely right, but that he should say what he has to say quietly and politely and not to yell. But you yelled at him, Lev said, confused. I know, I said, and that wasn't right. And you know what? I'm going to apologize now. I leaned forward so my mouth almost touched the thick, hairy neck of the driver and said loudly, almost declaiming, 
Mr. Driver, I'm sorry I yelled at you, it wasn't right. When I finished, I looked at Lev and smiled again, or at least I tried. I, I looked out of the window. We were just easing our way out of traffic, or out of the traffic jam on, in Zabotinsky Street. The hard part was behind us. But Daddy, Lev said, putting his tiny hand on my knee. Now the man has to tell me he's sorry too. I looked at the sweaty driver in front of us. It was clear to me that he was hearing our whole conversation. It was even clearer that asking him to apologize to a three-year-old was not really a good idea. The road between us was stretched to the breaking point as it was. Sweetie, I said, bending down to Lev. You're a smart little boy, and you already know lots of things about the world, but not everything. And one of the things that you still don't know is that saying you're sorry might be the hardest thing of all, and that doing something so hard while you're driving could be very, very dangerous. <laughs> because while you're trying to say you're sorry, you can have an accident. But you know what? I don't think we have to, say, to ask the driver to say he's sorry, because just by looking at him, <coughs> because just by looking at him, I can tell that he's sorry. We'd already driven into Bialik Street. Now there was only the right turn onto Nordo, and then a left to Bear Lane. In another minute, would be there. Daddy, left said as he narrowed his eyes. I can't tell that he's sorry. At that moment, in the middle of the incline of Nordo, on, on Nordo, the driver slammed on the brakes again and pulled up the handbrake. He turned around and moved his face close to my son's. He didn't say anything, just looked Lev in the eye, and a very long second later whispered, Believe me, kid, I'm sorry. Okay, guys, so um, I'm going to ask a couple of questions, and, and um, then don't worry, I will turn it over to the audience. Um, the first question I wanted to ask you both was about um, violence and how it underpins or accesses or fails to access your fiction. Eka, you often avoid it directly in your stories, uh, but it impinges always. Yeah. And Ben, you like to embrace it, but it's there in both your work and in your new book. You know, it's allegorical. It's about violence in America. In your stories, you take on the way in which, as I said in the introduction, something will happen in Iraq or Vietnam, and it'll rebound into contemporary America. And in, and in your stories, obviously, they're coming out of this extraordinarily volatile world where the violence erupts every so often. So I wondered if you could both, sure. each of you could talk about that a little. Well, I'm, I'm very interested actually in the technique of the obscene, the obscene in which in the Greek tragedies the violence would occur off stage and maybe a war would occur or somebody would be beheaded and then they would come back on and sort of tell you what had occurred. I think there's something uh, incredibly effective about that uh, because we are as audience members more complicit in the act. We are more participatory if we are imagining something happening ourselves. So I think that I actually try to, even though sometimes I do have scenes of violence, I also think about moments uh, such as in um, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, 
there's a moment at the end that is the most terrifying of all. And that is after you've witnessed every terrible thing imaginable, at the end of the story, the kid, who I guess is our protagonist, uh, the kid, even though there's a, you know, the cast is quite wide, the kid is in this, in this tavern and uh, there's music playing and he encounters the judge who is a bit of a, he's a kind of satanic character. Um, who, who tried to kill the kid earlier in the novel. And the kid, they have a few tense words and then the kid escapes around the back of the bar a bit later and he goes to the Jakes, to the outhouses. And when he opens one up, the judge is standing there naked and he is something like seven feet tall and just about as wide. He's a grotesque character and as hairless as a stone, you know. And, and what he does is he just opens up his arms and, and the door to the Jakes closes and you don't see what's in there, what happens. And I feel like that moment, like that's the abyss right there. If, if Horman McCarthy is not showing us that, what could have possibly occurred? And it's, it's, it's horrifying as a result. Um, and, and I guess that carries over to, to so many other circumstances. If you think about horror movies, right, the most terrifying moment in any horror movie is when the people hear a noise behind a cellar door or deep in a cave and they walk toward it and reach for the knob. Whenever you open up the door or flash a light upon whatever's waiting there, the audience screams, but they also laugh because they're, they're relieved. It isn't as bad as they imagined. And I think that that's sometimes true with violence. Like the, the, most, the most effective thing to do is sort of to hold your fist up and, and that's how you make your audience flinch rather than following through. But sometimes it is incredibly effective to show the violence. But I feel like the danger is, and I see this in so many workshops with students, uh, and I have to say it's oftentimes male students, um, you know, that there is what I call, like to call gornography. Uh, and that is violence meant to titillate. And I feel like Chuck Palahniuk is, is guilty of this so often. I think Fight Club's a fantastic novel, but other, other, other from that, like he, he's guilty of gornography over and over. And, uh, but then you look at other circumstances where it's used so elegantly or so powerfully. I think of Eula Biss, who I think is maybe the best essayist writing today. And her book, uh, Notes from No Man's Land, has an essay in it called Time and Distance Overcome, in which she, in the first half, relays the history of the telephone pole and the telephone. It opens up in this very historic, sort of in, in almost encyclopedic, boring manner that lulls you along, and then the second half of the essay just turns on this fulcrum and terrifies you as she tells you, just incredibly bluntly, instance after instance of black men being hung from telephone poles, being lynched from telephone poles. And so you have, here you have this unassuming beginning, and here you have this incredibly violent end, this incredibly violent second half. And uh, it's important for us to, to see that. It's important for us to experience that violence. It's important for us to flinch. And, and, and so, you know, I, I actually debate this on a daily basis at the keyboard, how best to use it. But if you ever need the, uh, one of the stories read in a pussy voice, you know, <laughs> I, I, I hope all you want. Uh, I was going to ask you to read some erotic <laughs> werewolf haiku. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I can say that uh, uh, I, I'm a son of Holocaust survivors. Uh, my mother 
it saw it seen her mother and the baby brother killed in front of her of her eyes when she was seven years old then the her father was murdered too and and when I grew up as a kid uh, the notion of violence was basically very much associated with survival it's hard to believe especially when I stand next to you but when I was a kid I was actually a pretty good fighter and the uh, and Kids would make fun of me because I would never initiate aggression, but when I would fight, I would be kind of ruthless. But at the same time, I would cry when I would fight. Like, I would beat, beat kids up and cry. And the reason I cried, because I felt humiliated. I felt humiliated. Every time I had to be violent, I felt that I felt something. You know, I always say to my son that, uh, like, that for me, if I punish him, it means I failed. I said, if, if there is a game of being a father and a, and a child and I punish you, it's not a proof that I'm stronger than you. It's just a proof that I wasn't able to get things right. So help me get things right. Because, so for me, violence is always, a, is always associated with failure and humiliation. And I think that, the, and I think that the, my stories are extremely violent, but when people read them, they don't, they don't, read them as violent because, because it's like me beating up another kid and crying. You know, I cry so hard that you don't even feel the punches. Wow. Thank you. I want to ask you both a, a question about I identity. Um, uh, last year, I, maybe it was a year and a half ago, I interviewed um, the Israeli novelist um, David Grossman, who appears in one of your stories, of course. Yeah. And um, I was talking to him about... Um, an incredibly long sex scene in one of his novels that went on for about 45 pages. And um, you need stamina for that. Well, that was, uh, <laughs> that was kind of my question. And, uh, and I said to him, you know, it's, it's extraordinary. It's actually it's a very dark scene, but I said it's an extraordinary sort of mix of Eros and fantasy. I said, but, but David, you know, it, it goes on for, for 45 pages. Like, how did that happen? And he said, we're Israelis. You know, as if, as if somehow, and he, you know, he, it was very funny, of course. I wondered the extent to which the places that you're from uh, color the way in which you perceive yourselves as writers, um, Oregon in your case and Israel in your case. Well, I grew up in the out of doors. I had a kind of Huck Finnish upbringing, and we had 27 acres of big pines, and I would depart at the beginning of the day and return at the ends and didn't have much in the way of supervision. So I was living a life of fantasy. I guess it was good training ground for a novelist in that I was pretending myself into a cowboy. I was pretending myself into a knight. I was uh, hunting Sasquatch. I was firing stones from my, from my wrist rocket and so on and accompanied all this time by my trusty steed Heidi the German Shepherd, um, and and every single vacation we took, and I I'm not exaggerating when I say this, every single vacation consisted of us filling up the back of the pickup with not just fishing rods and maybe some rifles, but also shovels and pickaxes and trowels and whisk brooms because my father was an amateur geologist, archaeologist, and so we would head off to the scab lands and we would excavate, pulling from the ground geodes and petrified wood and, and such, thunder eggs and, 
And uh, I guess the highlight find of my childhood was we, we pulled out of this grotto a deer skull encased with rose crystals um, that now sits on my family's dinner table like a crystallized ham or something. Um, <laughs> and as a result of this, I was very attuned to the natural world, um, uh, probably more than most. And I, these days, we, we tend to live, we tend to all be indoorsmen, you know, instead of outdoorsmen. Like, we spend almost all of our time inside, and place doesn't seem to matter as much, but it was intensely important to me. And Oregon, when I didn't, I wasn't able to travel much growing up, uh, maybe because my parents weren't especially inclined to, but also financially strapped, and, uh, you know, Oregon was my territory. O Oregon was my, f I always tell students, like, write about your own 40 acres. Those are, Oregon is my 40 acres. Oregon is my muse. And, and I try to think of place almost as a character. And if you think of Oregon, it's such a dynamic character. It's such a fragmented place. It's fragmented because it contains almost every single type of bioregion. It has plains, it has desert, it has rainforest, it has alpine, it has ocean. Uh, it's fragmented culturally. You have an influx of uh, Hispanic population, you have an influx of really rich Californians, and you have that running up against this old logging, ranching culture. Uh, it's, it's fragmented politically. You have Eugene and Portland making the state blue politically. But if you consider the state geographically, it's very much a red state. Uh, and then you have just, I don't know, you have these interesting ways of, of industry crashing up against wilderness with the logging or with these, uh, with these golf courses spilling like green oil slicks into the desert or these railroad tracks stapled uh, across the state. And, and, and there's so much, such a dynamic place for, for drama as a result of that. And growing up, I was always aware of danger too. Um, a friend of mine died when skiing. A friend of mine died when snowmobiling. A friend of mine was bitten by a rattlesnake. Uh, a friend of mine at camp in the bunk next to me uh, went down to sleep on their first night and woke up screaming covered in black widow bites and had to be helicoptered out. I mean, just over and over again, I had sort of these experiences that, uh, as Flannery O'Connor says, you know, that you, you Oh, what is it, seven years of a southern childhood give rise to a lifetime of stories, and I sort of feel the same way about a western childhood in that way. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Growing up in Israel, I think it's, it's a very, very uh, a unique place to, to grow in. You know, it's like, uh, the idea, you know, Israel, this concept of the country of the Jews, in modern time it first appeared uh, in Todor Herzl's book, uh, Alt-Neuland. A new American, when you see a good book, you make a movie out of it, and we, we make a country out of it. We make a country based on the book. And like, like in your movie, you know the country is not as good as the book. Uh, but, uh, but the things that, uh, like, I, I can say a million things about the different and unique things in living in Israeli society, but the things that uh, I feel that is very, very powerful is the bipolar nature, you say bipolar? Bipolar nature of the people who live in Israel. Because what happened is that you live in a place, you know, 
I'm a vegetarian. Many of my friends are vegan. We don't let our kids see kind of uh, violent uh, movies, you know. We are very into nature, you know, we're good to animals. But three years of our life, we're in the army, and we shoot at people, and they shoot at us. And almost, uh, I would say, half of the population in Israel, or maybe one-third, is, is practically shell-shocked, you know. Like, I don't know almost any person who who doesn't, didn't have an experience that he shot somebody and killed him or saw his best friend shot or he got shot at himself. But when you go in the streets, you don't feel that. You know, people live their nice life. You know, there uh, is a person that I know that is really, really the most uh, a tender uh, person that I've ever met. And this guy in the army, he was a sniper. So he had a number of confirmed killings. And what happens in, the, in Israel is that from when you're 21 till you depend 40 or 40 something, you go for reserve duty for 30 days or, or, or more or less uh, every year. And this guy, he wanted to get out of his sniper unit because he was really like, you know, he's the kind of guy that doesn't have a television home because he doesn't want his children to see this stuff. And, uh, and what happened was that every time they would call him and say, hey, man, you have to come because, you know, because Jackie just had a, had a baby, Eli, you know, he has a problem with his kidney. Come on, if you don't come, we'll have to call one of them. And he's a good friend and a nice guy. So he goes and kills another person and goes back to his normal life in which he's, uh, he learned medicine and he helps people. So there is something in this uh, bipolarity that is essential. I remember when I was in the army during uh, my compulsory army service, uh, I was in the army, and when we had the weekend leave, you know, when we left and went home, I would take off my uniform and go and demonstrate against the actions of the army. And the next day, I would wear my uniforms again, and maybe in some cases, would have to fight the people who were demonstrating, who were actually my friends, but they were home, and I was in the army. So this idea of kind of a, of this mixture of identity and mixture of narrative, I think a, it has a strong, powerful effect about the way uh, people act, but, the, but, but in a strange way, you're completely unaware of it, you know? And uh, I can give you really the, the, the silliest example, but, uh, but uh, I think it, it does say something. Is that, let's say, when a typical Israeli young man has a fight with his girlfriend or his wife, and she locks the door, and she says to him, I'm not letting you in tonight, then, there is a difference, let's say, if a young American man fights with his girlfriend and she locks the door and says, I'm not getting you in tonight. Because every young Israeli man was taught how to kick a door open. We know how to do it. But now we're in a different identity, so we pretend we don't know what to do. It's funny, because sometimes you see fights. When, when Israelis fight, you know, and many of them in the army, you learn Krav Maga. So the first thing you do, they teach you to do in a fight, is to take somebody's eyes out. That's the first thing you do. You know, after that, you can do other things. But when they fight, they know, many of them, they know how to kill you, but they fight as if they don't. So there is something about this idea that, uh, that I think that in most Western uh, world, civilization is a given. When you, the way you act, you think this is the ontology of the world. The world is built this way. But in Israel, civilization is kind of a, a gentleman agreement with everybody around you. you. You do the things that you're supposed to do. But you know there is this kind of very 
a dark shadow lurking on you. And I think that I, I try, in a sense, to write about this, this, this uh, duality. Wow. Okay, I want to throw it open to the audience. Can I just follow up on what you're saying? As I was um, driving this afternoon, they, uh, it being Veterans Day, um, they were doing a lot of programming um, having to do with um, military service and experience. And it was, there was a war correspondent who was talking about the notion of sort of moral, um, a, a moral wound um, that, um, that soldiers um, experience. That I think actually goes back to Jonathan Shea, who um, is a Newton um, psychiatrist who's written a lot about Greek drama and, and um, thinking about um, the military experience or filter, or using the, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey as a way of thinking about that. But he talked about this moral wounds being exactly what you were, you were talking about, both of you actually, um, this kind of being, but particularly the kind of double, the double set of rules. Um, that what you have to do in war, um, that might be fine, that might be what's called for you to do the perfectly normal uh, rules to do there, but then at home, so perhaps killing a 13-year-old child, um, that in the context of war is the right thing to do, but once you get home, that's a horrific thing to do, and trying to, to juggle those, um, those two realities and those two sets of worlds is what's so difficult. Um, so that I wonder if a writer is a way, so then I had to get out of the car and didn't get to hear what ways that, and that people are dealing with that. Um, but I'm wondering if being a writer is a way of, of merging those two, or at least being more explicit about Maybe you're more aware of those dual worlds than, than other people? I, I can say that the first story I wrote, I wrote it, uh, I wrote it uh, 10 days after I, uh, I was in the same room with my best friend in the army who shot himself and uh, who killed himself. And I think that, there was, that uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's a theory, but my intuitive, my intuition or the way that I tell my story is that uh, I deteriorated into writing. I, I think really that if everything's okay, there's no need to write, you know. I'm saying it's like, you know, people write such, such beautiful poems about, about girls who said no to them, you know. Because the girls who said yes to them, they were too busy doing other things to write poems, you know. <laughs> so so, so I, think, I think that there is something about, uh, about writing that it helps you complete something that you cannot complete in any other way. And, and, and again, you know, w with my friend and all this experience, there is something uh, horrible in a situation of conflict, and it doesn't have to, you know, we have all those stories about, you know, people shooting and killing, but I can tell you this, the most simple thing. You know, in Israel we have checkpoints, and in the checkpoint there is a soldier, and the people who go through those checkpoints and that he affects them practically, like I'm telling you because I was in a, once in an activity of an organization that tries to convince the soldier to be nice, so, so I've I've been there and I saw it. So technically, you have two soldiers and about, it's, at the time, 800 to 2,000 people going through the checkpoint. The two soldiers, they're, in average, they're 18 or 19 years old. The 1,000 people who go through them hate them, you know, for good reason from their side. So you have two guys against 1,000 people and the thing that every kid, you know, who could be like, you know, you guys who stand there, they know that if the notion that they can overcome those two kids will come to mind, they'll be killed because it happened. You know, they lynch them. If some, they jump at you, you shoot two, two guys, and then they kill you. So the idea is that the way that you can maintain 
this peacefulness of a checkpoint is basically by intimidating the people there. So the first thing that they teach you that if you're in a checkpoint, don't say please, don't say thank you. Somebody falls, don't help him up. Don't do anything that can give the notion that you're human. Because if there are 1,000 human beings facing two human beings, that they're going to destroy them. But if they have 1,000 human, human beings facing two merciless soldiers, they would think twice before doing anything. So the question is, how can you go in such a procedure as a young man acting something that you're not just to survive for such a long time and not let this thing affect your personality? I, I honestly think that it's impossible. I don't really think that you can go through it and live your life. I mean, you know, all my friends had been through such experiences and there are great people and great parents and nice guys and we go into demonstration together. But there is something about the human experience that I think, let, let's say my wish when I raise my son, I say, you know, basically, primarily we're animals. You know, we, we, we fight to get resources to eat, to survive. But I would want him not to know that. I would want him not to know that. And, and, and I must say, growing up in Israel and being the son of a Holocaust survivor, there is something about it that is very, very difficult to forget it. You know, I remember that a, a, one of the first time I went with, with my parents to a restaurant, I said to, to my mother that the food isn't good. And you know, and it was a restaurant with those big tables when not only your family sits in the table, but all kinds of people. And my mother said to me, I tell you something. When you sit next to a plate and you hold a, a knife and a fork, and the people around you, they're using the knife or fork to eat from their plates and not to attack you, and not to eat from yours, say thank you. This is a good day. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think that there is something in these things that kind of all, all the time resonates in you. And I'm saying, you know, maybe like some people could say philosophically that maybe we are living in a more authentic position. But who wants to be authentic, you know? We just want to be human beings. What was the, what was the name of that book that you said that Israel is based on? Uh, Alt Neuland. It's an old new country written by Theodor Herzl. The guy with the beard, you know, if you saw so there. You got the last one in. Um, I know that uh, Fergie made you write very, very short, very short stories. And what is attractive about the short form? The, the short form? The short, short story. Yeah, so I have a short, a yeah, short, a short answer. Because the longer things, I mean, you were talking about that comic, the part that is long things, but what's, why is the story? Well, for a long time, I thought I would only be a short story writer. Yeah. And I was okay with that. It was, it's the sprint, it's the rush. Uh, you get a, a glimpse of a life, and you can be more impressionistic and even strenuous with your language because your audience is with you for 10, 15 pages, two pages, and, and they're, they're, going to, they're going to spend more time uh, reading and rereading and thinking about it, uh, almost like a poem, as opposed to a novel where clarity is, in general, far more important, you know, carrying the reader along in that vivid and continuous dream. And I was writing, I wrote four failed novels before publishing one. Uh, and, and in doing this, I, I, I almost, I, I, re, I, I hardwired my brain differently. 
so that now I have difficulty thinking in the short form and I, and I miss it and I almost want to immerse myself exclusively in short fiction for a time to see if I can get back into it. I, I miss the sprint, though I'm built for the marathon now. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think in a sense that when you write very short stories like compared to novels, that novel, I, I always feel it kind of creates a universe physically, you know, there are like streets and buildings and people living in them, you know, it's like you're a god, you created something. While a very short fiction for me, it's like emotion. It's the movement. And uh, in my case, at least it comes from a place that is totally unconscious. Uh, and I was once asked why my stories are so short and I said to them that I see my stories like explosions and I don't know how to explode slowly. <laughs> Because I was thinking of Lee, I talked to a story of Crazy Glue so many times, and it's just, it is like an explosion, it's like just the title, Crazy Glue, okay, and then it just goes on in this person, a wife glues herself to the ceiling, no spoiler alert here, <laughs> and it's just like, but it's so quick, and it's so funny, and, well, 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 and the great ending just sort of moves, it's so well, I got it. But that's what's nice, but it's so short, and it's just so... Depending on these very few things, and it's really fascinating. Well, well, well I think that, let's say, in a sense, I think uh, short stories, it, uh, uh, first of all, when I write stories, I don't know what I'm going to write. You know, it's kind of like going out on an adventure. I think that my strongest incentive to write them is to figure out what's going to happen next. It's really like I'm very much like a reader who knows that if he won't write the next paragraph, he'll have nothing to read. So, but but, but what, what, what I really feel is, is that... Uh, uh, that they're very much like dreams in that sense. You know, I've, I, I ne I've never had a very long dream. <laughs> there, there's something about the dream that it's kind of an image or, or, or something. It kind of, for me, it's kind of like a dialogue with my unconscious. And my unconscious is impatient, you know. It says a few sentences, spits at me, bites at me, yells, and then go, you know. So... I, I, I guess maybe, uh, like Benjamin said, you know, I can try and write a novel from another part of my brain. But uh, I'm kind of, I feel so liberated not to have any plans, not to do anything. So for me, like, you know, in life, I do whatever I, I have to. And when I write, I just write. Um, I just want to say that um, writers don't always have interesting things to say. And this has been an extraordinary evening, and I can't remember really a time, uh, I've been to many events like this and participated, where two writers have been so open and so candid and given us so much um, in so many different areas. Um, so I think we're really, um, we really had a gift tonight.